Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I am your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan, my continuing mission on planet Earth to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. In this installment, we turn our attention to the concept of evolutionary mismatch. The theme of the essays presented on Fascinating has always been evolution awareness and evolutionary thinking, and how evolutionary thinking is more valid and useful than intelligent design thinking. How does evolutionary mismatch fit into all of this? Does it undermine the validity of evolutionary thinking? Contributing editor Slancha Nazdorovia submits the following thoughts. First, what do we mean by evolutionary mismatch? The idea of the evolutionary trap was introduced by an evolutionary biologist named Ernst Meyer early in the 20th century. An evolutionary trap is when a species that is genetically adapted to a particular environment finds itself abruptly in an environment to which it is not adapted and it becomes extinct. The evolutionary trap is an extreme example of what is now more generally referred to as evolutionary mismatch. Not every mismatch is going to lead to extinction, but each one can lead to at least minor and sometimes major problems as a species struggles to adapt to a new environment. You might be familiar with the example of the peppered moth in England during the early part of the Industrial Revolution. Soot and other pollutants had caused the bark of the trees the moths rested on to turn darker, which made their light color easier for predators to spot. They were no longer matched to the environment. Instead of becoming extinct, the species quickly adapted, however, as a darker phenotype was selected by nature from amongst those already extant, which restored their camouflage. The trees eventually became lighter again as air pollution dramatically decreased, and the species quickly readapted to the lighter-colored bark. There is also the example of the dodo bird, which lived and thrived on the island of Mauritius, with no natural predators, until the island was discovered by humans. The dodos had evolved to become both flightless and fearless, so when humans began hunting them for food, it wasn't long until they were wiped out. A common thread of discussion in today's world is whether rapid developments in Earth civilization such as living predominantly in large cities instead of in the countryside or in villages, or advances in science and technology have created a mismatch between evolved human physiology and behavior and the circumstances of modern life. Supposedly, some of the adaptations that evolve to solve recurrent problems in ancestral environments are of little help and might even be a hindrance in the modern environment in which we humans find ourselves. Humans have been going through major changes in both their physical and social environment, beginning with the transition from a hunting and gathering lifestyle to an agricultural lifestyle. 
The agricultural lifestyle eventually was transformed by the Industrial Revolution, and in in developed countries at this time, only about 3% of the population is involved in agriculture. The developing world is following suit. With humans, several afflictions of modern times can be plausibly described as examples of evolutionary mismatch, such as obesity, diabetes, anxiety, and various addictive behaviors. What about possible social maladaptations in humans? An example you often hear of an evolved trait that is less than ideal in the modern world is that humans care more for kith and kin, that is, neighbors and relatives, than they do for people they don't know and or who live at a distance. This trait is said to violate a more enlightened morality, which says that in order to be moral, we must value everyone on the planet equally and act accordingly. The narrative is that our evolved proclivity to favor kith and kin are a regrettable accident. I, for one, do not understand why this view of morality is considered enlightened. I would love to hear someone explain why they believe this, rather than just asserting that it is so. The rationale I have heard so far seems to be that it will only be through a broadening of empathy and compassion that those who find themselves in desperate circumstances will ever be helped. But how exactly would this proposed change, this broadening, if it is even possible, be effective in improving the lives of those who still languish in poverty? In other words, what is the chain of causation and effect that will bring about the change? Will individuals just begin behaving differently, or will we need some sort of institutional arrangement to make it all work? We need some details here. And what would it do to the process of rearing children, which seems to be served rather well by following our evolved proclivities? If the hope is that the institution of government can be somehow employed to create practical effects in pursuit of expressing this empathy and compassion, let me remind you of the immortal words of Rocky to Bullwinkle. That trick never works. We have to stop beating that dead horse. If someone has come up with some answers to these questions, I would very much like to hear about them. And is the empathy and compassion we're speaking of even necessary to accomplish the desired goals? In recent decades, billions of humans have seen significant improvements in their lives anyway, just due to the operations of markets, operating under a system of property rights and the rule of law. On the eve of the Industrial Revolution, the percentage of human beings living in extreme poverty is estimated at about 5 in 6. Now, several centuries along, that figure has dropped to less than 1 in 10, according to the World Bank. In America, poor people are fat. At no time in history have poor people been fat. Not only is it difficult to imagine how a broadening of empathy and compassion would translate into a better world, the world is clearly getting better anyway due to cultural evolution, 
The capacity for culture is an evolved trait, and it might very well be all we need in order to continue making the world a better place to live in and to live in it. I would like to call your attention to two books worthy of your attention if you wish to deepen your understanding of cultural evolution as it applies to these issues. The Evolution of Cooperation by Robert Axelrod, first published in 1984, with a new edition appearing in 2006. The Company of Strangers by Paul Seabright, first published in 2004. Axelrod's book, The Evolution of Cooperation, is an exploration of the mathematical theory of games and how the theory applies to real life. And this exploration shows, surprisingly, that nice guys do not finish last. Forgiveness and niceness are rewarded, and envy and treachery are punished. Cooperation can arise spontaneously among players of prisoner's dilemma-type games, as long as the game is repeated and not just a one-off transaction. The repeated game is known as an iterated prisoner's dilemma. Axelrod invited a number of prominent scientists and other academics to compete in a gaming tournament by submitting a computer program that would choose in repeated rounds based on the results of earlier rounds whether to cooperate or defect in the next round. This decision would be informed by the opponent's past behavior. In real life, an example of this type of choice might be whether or not to pay a bill that you owe. In a one-off transaction, you would gain, but in iterated transactions, your gain would evaporate as you found yourself no longer considered credit-worthy. The payoff matrix in Axelrod's first computer game consisted of a 2 by 2 grid, that is, four squares representing the four possible combinations of decisions by the two players in each round. Both cooperate, both defect, and one or the other cooperates while the other defects. The amounts that were paid simulated real-world circumstances, with the highest total payoff coming in the mutual cooperation square, and the lowest total payoff in the mutual defection square. If you defected and your opponent cooperated, that is, if you played them for a sucker, your payoff would be higher than if you both cooperated, and the cooperator's payoff would be even less than if both players had defected. In a one-off transaction with such a payoff matrix, there is clearly a strong incentive for both players to defect. Whatever choice your opponent makes, your best strategy is to defect. But what about iterated transactions? Many of the programs that were submitted attempted strategic defections in order to try to capture the large rewards available when you were able to sucker your opponent. But such programs did not fare well overall. The program that amassed the most points was a simple strategy of tit-for-tat. You cooperate on your initial move, and for each succeeding move you copy, what your employee, what your opponent has done the last time around. 
This strategy of simple reciprocity effectively punished defection and rewarded cooperation, and the strategy tended to spread throughout the population of competitors. There have been further developments to the story, and I encourage you to read the book in its entirety, making sure to get the 2006 edition with the foreword by Richard Dawkins. For purposes of this essay, the crucial realization is that cooperation can and does arise spontaneously, not only in computer gaming, but also in the real world, without anyone in a position of authority giving orders to the players. Seabright's book, The Company of Strangers, has a subtitle, A Natural History of Economic Life. It chronicles the emergence of cooperation among strangers during the years since the agricultural revolution. In hunter-gatherer cultures that preceded agriculture, people did not much welcome interactions with strangers. In the interest of self-preservation, you had to presume that a stranger was more likely an enemy than a friend, someone to be fought or run from. In today's world, on the other hand, cooperation among strangers is the norm. And in most circumstances, you are safe in presuming that, at worst, a random stranger you might encounter is not a threat. And at best, strangers are capable of anonymous cooperation, and in fact engage in cooperation so routinely and so widely that we barely notice it is happening, and do not consider it remarkable. This state of affairs is the result of a division of labor, mediated by an evolved system of markets without anyone being in charge and assigning tasks. The tasks instead are taken up by people who are primarily pursuing their own interests. I would like to read to you a few excerpts from a review of Seabright's book that appeared in the British news magazine The Economist back in August 2004, beginning with a quote from the book. Our everyday life is much stranger than we can imagine and rests on fragile foundations. Why is everyday life so strange? Because, explains Mr. Seabright, it is so much at odds with what would have been would have seemed as recently as 10,000 years ago our evolutionary destiny. It was only then that one of the most aggressive and elusive bandit species in the entire animal kingdom decided to settle down. In no more than the blink of an eye in evolutionary time, these suspicious and untrusting creature, the shy, murderous apes, developed cooperative networks of staggering scope and complexity, networks that rely on trust among strangers. When you come to think about it, it was an extraordinarily improbable outcome. The genetic inheritance of Homo sapiens sapiens equipped man to succeed as a hunter-gatherer. Humans cooperated with each other in hunting and fighting, but this cooperation occurred within groups of close relatives. Human evolution favored caution and mistrust as far as strangers were concerned. Yet modern man engages in the sharing of tasks 
and in an extremely elaborate division of labor with strangers, that is, with genetically unrelated members of his species. The review goes on to point out that the startlingly beneficial effects of widespread cooperation rest on a foundation that is fragile, not only because cheaters and free riders can invade the space and degrade the system, but also because it's always possible that the evolved ability to cooperate can be used to wage war more effectively. The broad lesson I see here is that we should not be quite so eager to second-guess evolution. All the time while we have been fretting about how nature has failed us, and problems await if we do not step up and take control, nature has been solving the problem. Generally speaking, nature is smarter than we are, and evolution, both physical and cultural, will work better solutions than we than those we believe we can impose. It also seems clear that many of those amongst us who are eager to second-guess nature are actually primarily eager to gain power, after which they have promised to use their power only for good, of course, and are too quick to dismiss thoughts and proposals that do not cast people like them in the role of savior. Thanks to Slancha for this informative and thought-provoking essay. I invite you to have a listen to the next installment of Fascinating. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to Senior Contributing Editor Prego Denada, pregodenada at gmail.com. Live long and prosper. <laughs>